What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I'm so excited that you're tuning in for another episode of the podcast. Before we get started, I want to make a few announcements. I know you've been wondering, where are the new podcast episodes? They are coming uh, because of the generous support of listeners like you and those who watch and those who give. Uh, We have been able to move in our first office space uh, fully equipped with a new podcast studio. And we're just finishing up uh, that project. And so in just a few more weeks, you'll be able to see and hear updated podcast episodes. We're excited to up the quality for you all. We're excited um, to have more guests to engage. And we have some more amazing announcements coming soon as it relates to our podcast, but I can't give you those details just yet. But in addition to that, um, you know, we recently had the Through Eyes of Color virtual experience, which thank you all for uh, registering and watching. You made it our most uh, attended conference so far um, by God's grace. And we appreciate that. And for those who have watched it and say, I want to watch it again, or those who missed it, you still have an opportunity to do so, to watch it, to catch all the amazing um, lectures and conversations. It was it was truly an awesome time. We've got so much good feedback from that um, conference. You could do so by watching it at jude3project.org backslash on demand. And also we're offering a promo code to watch it for 40% off using the code T capital T capital E capital O capital C 2020. Again, that's capital T capital E capital O capital C 2020. You can get 40% off um, to watch it on demand there. We are so excited and we thank you again to our monthly supporters and those who give to support the mission and vision of the Jew 3 Project, which is helping black Christians know what they believe and why. And if you aren't a monthly partner and you would like to join um, and be a monthly partner, you could do so at Jew3Project.org um, and hit the donate tab. There's an option to donate online or donate by mail. We appreciate all that you have done, our supporters, those who pray for us, those who give. We could not do what we do without generous support from people like you. As I always say, every gift helps equip and you're helping us to do the work. So thank you. And without further ado, let's get into another episode of the G3 Project Podcast. Grace and peace. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Thank you for watching a special episode of the Jew 3 Project. I am your guest host, Dr. Vince Bantu. And today we are joined by Dr. Esau McCauley, and we are highlighting a chapter from his upcoming book entitled Reading While Black. So welcome, Dr. McCauley. For those of you that don't know uh, Dr. Esau McCauley, uh, Dr. McCauley, could you share a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm an assistant professor at New Test- in New Testament at Wheaton College. I did my Ph.D. at the University of St. Andrews, where I studied under the direction of N.T. Wright. I also write a lot of popular articles. I'm a contributing writer for the New York Times. My work is also, has also appeared in the, in the Washington Post and Christianity Today and The Witness and a few other places. 
All right. Thank you so much. Well, we are very excited about your book. I'm, I'm excited for it to be coming out. And today, as I mentioned, we are going to be actually looking at a particular chapter in the book uh, entitled Black and Proud. And so I wonder, Dr. McCall, if you could just start us off a little bit by sharing a little bit about this chapter and also kind of its place in the work and why you felt it was important to include that particular chapter in the overall book. The whole point is when I, when I decided to compose the book, I thought to myself, well, what are the exact questions and issues that are, that are plaguing African-Americans in particular? So I, I said earlier that this isn't a book simply like about black people to a white audience. We're trying to at least address as best as I could the issues that black Christians were facing that I feel like we're facing in our day. And one of the questions that I thought that I was feel, feeling and hearing and seeing a lot in the culture is whether or not Christianity is a white man's religion. And whether or not like Jesus saves me kind of from my ethnicity into this kind of like non-ethnic board where we all merged into one, or if Jesus kind of values and honors my blackness as a created good. And so Black and Proud was my attempt to speak about the ways in which Bible affirms ethnicity as a good and created thing. And in my context, that means it's my blackness. Oh, yeah, that's that's great. That's and that's as you know, that's a very strong passion of mine as well. And so I'm just so grateful for you, including that uh, in this book. And so if you could maybe speak a little more into that, um, you know, because as you as you alluded to, um, you know, there are many people, especially in the black community who are questioning or even just outright rejecting or leaving Christianity um, because there's a sense in which it doesn't that Christianity doesn't speak to the black experience. And so I wonder if you could just share a little bit about your hopes and also kind of uh, how you see this particular book and even in this chapter in particular, re up and to reshape a lot of the narrative. Well, there's two ways to answer that question. The first one is kind of the historical question, right? And this is actually a lot of your scholarship deals with the historical question. Is it true that black people only became Christians as a result of slavery? When I say the whip and the chain. And, you know, what I say is that you can just open up like a map. This doesn't even take to be like that woke or that really aware scholarship. Just open up a map and like point at where Jerusalem is and see where Jerusalem is on the map. It's not in Europe. And then if you look at the early centers of Christianity being um, North Africa and um, I talked about there's Rome, Constantinople, um, Alexandria and Jerusalem. Uh, being the kind of the four standards of early Christianity, and only one of them is in what we would call now in the West. And so historically, it's just not the case that Christianity was a white man's religion. That Christianity actually comes into um, Africa, um, at least the southern part. If you if you want to go to sub-Saharan Africa, Christianity comes into Ethiopia and the Nubian kingdoms via Egypt. And so there was even the, the truth of the matter is that there are black people who became Christians without colonialization. And so that's the historical question. And so that's really not my area of expertise. That's your lane, Vince. And so I, I just kind of said one way of talking about it is looking at the historical question. And that can actually be pretty easily set aside. Then the real, the other question is, what happens when you turn to the biblical text themselves? Like, are there actually black people in the Bible? Um, and how, what are the ways in which the kind of the black story, the African story is a part of the Christian story? And one of the things that I said is that you can't, one of the things that we have is this inconsistent pan-Africanism. When I talk about an, inc an inconsistent pan-Africanism, I mean this, like whenever you're talking about kind of like, um, black indigenous religions or turning to the spirituality of our fathers, there's always this kind of all of Africa is one thing. If you're Egypt, Sub-Saharan, whatever, you're, you're, you're African and it's part of our story. And I said, well, if we're going to have a, a Africa count as black, 
in the secular account, we need to understand that then Africa and Egypt is a part of the Christian story. And then if you turn to the story of the Old and New Testament, you see Africans playing a large part in God's redemptive purposes. And you can't tell the story of Christianity and behind that Judaism without without including Africans in that narrative. And so the first part of um, I do a lot of different things in the book. But one of the things that I do is I talk about the fact that Ephraim and Manasseh, these two kind of brothers who are brought into the 12 tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh are um, Joseph's sons who are then brought into the 12 tribes by Jacob. And this is the point that I make from that story. And this gets to kind of the, the role of Africans in the wider redemptive narrative. Joseph, um, throughout, the, throughout the entirety of kind of this Genesis narrative, you see God over and over again making these promises to Israel or making these promises to Abraham and his descendants. that I'm going to bless the nations of the world through you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And the point is, the narrative of Genesis is about how God's going to bring the blessings to the other nations of the world. That means that from the beginning, God had his eye towards not a monoculture, but a multi-ethnic people of God. So then when you get to the story of Ephraim and Manasseh, you have this amazing story where Joseph, who's married to an Egyptian woman, right? The Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian wife and he has these, um, um, he has these two kids. He has these two kids. And when, and when Joseph sees, um, so when, when he has these two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he brings him to Jacob. And when he brings him to Jacob, Jacob says, I remember the God, I remember the promise that God made that you're going to make me a family of many nations. Therefore, these two Af half African boys are brought into the 12 tribes of Israel. So from the beginning of the Bible, right, from the very first part of the Christian story, what becomes the Christian, the Jewish and the Christian story, you have these two half African boys at the head of two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's just demonstrably false then to claim that if you go all the way back to the 12 tribes, there's Africans there. Then we don't need some kind of Hebrew Israelite conspiracy theory to kind of get black people, African people into the Christian narrative. There's literally African Hebrews right there at the very beginning of the Christian of the Jewish story. And so those are the kinds of ways which I say these facts about black presence in the Bible are facts hiding in plain sight. They're not these things that we have to kind of dig into and learn Greek and Hebrew to understand it. It's just right there in the text itself. Yeah, that's a great. I love I love that how you're pointing out how, again, it's just available right in the text. Right. Even I mean, of course, when we go and learn these languages and go kind of into, you know, higher ed and all that, it becomes those those simple truths become more illumined. But at the same time, they're plainly there for everybody to see. Um, and, yeah, that's a great point. Then I begin to talk about let's look at David. Let's look at David. You have in passages like Psalm 72, where it talks about excuse me, endowing the king with justice and righteousness. And, and David's praying this prayer for his for his son Solomon or for one of his descendants. And, he, and, and one of the prayers that David said is, may all the nations of the world be blessed through him. And what David is doing when he says this, it's, it's kind of a radical prayer. He's taking the Abrahamic promises. May all the nations of the world be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And he's applying it to his own son, the coming king. And so the idea then is that God is going to bless the nations of the world through the rule of the king whose rule is rooted in justice and righteousness. And so that means that the vision of the Old Testament, the vision of the Old Testament is, is the gathering of all the nations 
under the rule of the just king. So that's the vision of the New Testament, of the Old Testament, that is then fulfilled in Christ. How can we possibly say that there's no place for black people in the Bible? The whole point of the Bible is that God is glorified in gathering the nations to himself. Yes. Amen. That's just the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, and, well, that actually kind of, yeah, that, that leads into another question I was thinking, because as you're talking, um, it, you know, it makes me think about the New Testament. And I just wonder kind of if you have any thoughts about, you know, Acts chapter eight and the Ethiopian eunuch and just how this, how that also helps. To yes. The point that you're bringing out about how black people are clearly at the center of God's activity uh, in, in the scriptures. Well, yeah, I don't want to say the God black people are at the center. I want to say like the star of their story is Jesus. God is the star of the story. I just like to say we're created, we're pulled within his wider purposes. But interestingly enough, the Ethiopian eunuch um, is um, in the same chapter on black identity. And he's kind of paired with um, Simon of Cyrene. And the point that I wanted to make is if you go to the Old Testament and say, at the origin of the people of God, you have these Africans included in God's wider story. And the God's wider story is pointed towards the nations of the world being blessed through the, the one true king. What happens when you get to the New Testament? Do you see the same emphasis carried out? And once again, you see two Africans right at the start of Christianity. The first one is Simon of Cyrene, the one who's compelled to carry his cross. And as we know, Cyrene is, is a part of Northern Africa. And so th this, this is the interesting thing, though. Simon is, 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 is compelled to carry the cross. And in Mark's account of the gospel, Mark says, this is Simon of Cyrene, whose, whose sons, Rufus, you know. Right? Well, how do they know? How, how, how does Mark's congregation know to be able to ask Rufus? Well, that's, pre that's pretty easy to understand. He said, you can ask Alexander and Rufus. Well, how could you ask those two guys? That is because most likely... Simon of Cyrene, the African, carries this cross to Golgotha and is somehow drawn to Jesus. And not only does he become a Christian, his, his sons become Christians. Such that in Mark's day, he can say, you know what? If you don't believe the story that I'm telling, go ask his sons who are in our congregations now. There's another portion, portion in Paul's letters where a guy, um, they refer to the mother and there's a possibility that this is the same family. That not only is the is the African father become a Christian, the the wife does too, and the two sons. And so then you have this: you have the story at the at the cross. I mean, I don't understand how much closer to Christianity you can possibly be than like literally carrying Jesus's cross. You have an African who becomes Christian and then shares the gospel with his family who themselves become Christians and who are famous enough in the gospel story to get a shout out. Not only that, the image of discipleship, the image of discipleship in the New Testament that comes to define discipleship is what, Vince? Carrying your cross, right? That's what it means. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, who's the first person to literally carry the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? But an African. And so the, to, to pretend that this isn't our story, that we're not included in it, it's just a distortion of the biblical witness. Now, you then go to the other character in the book of Acts, um, the Ethiopian eunuch. Look, look at this. Look at this, Vince. Look at this. The Ethiopian eunuch is, you remember the story I'm going to ask you? You know the story, Vince? I'm going to ask you some questions. Vince, you know the story? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what passage is he reading 
when um, Philip comes up alongside him. So the Ethiopian eunuch, this is the birthplace of the church. The persecution happens and the Christians are spread abroad. And, and Philip, the spirit leads Philip to come up beside this man. Do you remember what he's reading? I think, wasn't it from Isaiah about, uh, you know, the Messiah beating, being beaten and, and, uh, and scores? No, see, here's the thing, though. This is the interesting thing, though. It says the passage that he quotes from is that in his suffering, justice was denied him. This is the passage. Go to Acts. He said, in his suffering, in his, you know, justice was denied him. And so Philip comes alongside him and he asks Philip, who is this character for whom justice is denied? Now, why might an Ethiopian eunuch be drawn to the story of someone who had justice denied them? It's possible that he was drawn to the story because an, a eunuch was someone who was castrated. And so even though he had economic standing, because of his relationship with Candace, he, he probably experienced this deep injustice where he was emasculated as a youth. But because of his political situation, he couldn't stand up and say what y'all did to me was wrong. So he had to carry the trauma of what was done to him inside, and he couldn't speak about it out loud. He's carrying this with him. And so then when he says, who is this character to whom justice is denied? And Philip says to him, it is the king. Then you have someone, you have someone, an African, an Ethiopian, who was drawn to Jesus, possibly because he was drawn to the idea that someone who had, who had suffered humiliation could then be vindicated by God. And so then Philip tells him the story. And so we can just imagine what Philip does. We can imagine that Philip said, this is the suffering servant, the one who was beaten and mistreated and mocked. And that despite the fact, um, despite the fact that he was beaten and, and suffering and mocked, he, he remained faithful to God and, and, and he died to reconcile the world to himself. And then he was vindicated by God and raised up. And so when, 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 when the Ethiopian hears this story, Yes, the Ethiopian is drawn to God because of the forgiveness of his sins. Yes, all of those things are true. But it is, is it also possibly the case the Ethiopian eunuch identifies with someone who has experiences who experienced a deep humiliation, but who was then therefore vindicated by God? There's this long tradition in the African American, I think, at least as I understand it, in the African American kind of appropriation of reception of Christianity, is that you don't necessarily need kind of this strong preaching of human depravity. Because the black people have been told that we've been depraved forever. We've been kind of seen as being less than human. One of the ways which the Christian gospel kind of comes into the African American life is to say, all the things that people have said about you are false, right? That you're not this subhuman thing, that you're, that you're God's own child. And so is it possible that, that the Ethiopian found some of his own dignity in the dignity given to the resurrected and reigning Lord? And this is where the African-American Christian comes in, right? That we feel like we receive our sense of who we are, our value, by the fact that God saw us, saw us as object worthy of his affection, so much so that he would die, he would die for us and we might be reconciled to him. So the point then is that both the Ethiopian eunuch and the um, Saint si I mean Simon of Cyrene are two Africans who are drawn to Jesus by the cross of Christ. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's I mean, that's man, that's that's powerful stuff right there. Um, 
and this is so important for me. I mean, you know, I, I'm just so grateful for your book being out, especially because, um, you know, as you know, I, I actually uh, work with an African-American seminary called the Meacham School of Hymenal. One of our one of our kind of pedagogical commitments is to elevating and even like having a, uh, a, a required amount of of literature, biblical, exegetical, theological, historical works written by African-Americans. And so not only to have your book added to that is because it's a challenge a lot of times to have, you know, find more books that are written by uh, black scholars in biblical theological studies, especially ones that are really committed to the gospel and the scriptures as you are. And so this is just such a helpful thing that for, for me to have as well and include and to have, and but also the way that your book is showing, whether it's in the Old or the New Testament, how black people uh, have really been uh, right in the center of what God has been doing uh, and, and, and God's activity with all of humanity uh, from the very beginning. Uh, and this is just, man, this is just, this is powerful stuff. Um, I wanted to share a line uh, and ask if you could just kind of expound on a little bit more. There's a powerful line at the end of this chapter, uh, you know, Black and Proud, where you, where you mentioned in the line that when the Black Christian enters the community of faith, she is not entering a strange land. She is finding her way home. And so as we think about that, that concluding thought with this with this chapter, um, I, I wonder if you could just share any any kind of expounding thoughts on that. And it's particularly why that idea of, of not being in a strange land, but one finding their way home, especially for especially for black Christians, how this can be a transformational concept uh, for black people to understand. Well, I think that because of the way that Christianity comes to the African-American, the, the North American descendants of slaves, we receive the Bible, um, or we first preach the gospel to us, basically as a way to justify our oppression. And so, you know, there's the, those slave catechisms where it says, you know, what does the Bible say about you? What you should do? You should submit to your master. Why should I submit to the master? Because the Bible tells me so. And so they, they we receive the Bible as, as an instrument of oppression. And so there is a sense in which, even though that's not the only black encounter with the Bible, it is a black encounter with the Bible. And so some black people could then ask the question then like, well, if that's the case, do I need to reject this text in order to kind of find myself? And what I want to say is that if you actually go on a search for yourself, if, you're, if the real question is, where are we in God's purposes? Where are we in the story? I want to say that it's here in the biblical text and it's in the early story of the Christian faith. And so what I wanted the reader to do is, one of the things that people think they think that decolonizing your decolonizing your theology means abandoning Christianity and its orthodox expression or abandoning the Bible in order to kind of find some authentic blackness. And what I wanted to say is that like that's a false choice um, that you can say that like God values me as I am. I don't want to say as I am because we're all transformed by the Holy Spirit. That God values my ethnic identity as a unique manifestation of God's glory. And so I just wanted to um, do as much as I could as a scholar to kind of ease that tension. Because one of the things that happened, and this is, I talk about this in another chapter of the book, is at least for me growing up in the black church, I was always told that like that the black Christians read the Bible well and that the slave masters were the bad interpreters and that the Christianity that we had was kind of the authentic expression of Christianity. And they were just practicing something that justified their naked desire for power. And sometimes you can sometimes where you have like some real like black, like kind of the, the anti-Christian conscious community, sometimes they can kind of feel like, well, no, 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 no. The slave master was correct. This is actually what the Bible says. And I says, well, hold on now. You, you have, you, you're in this strange situation where there's on one side of the table, there's both white nationalists 
and black critics of the Bible saying that the Bible justifies the oppression of black people. And I want to say that both of these groups are for different reasons reading the scriptures wrong. And I want to give people a way of reading the scriptures so they can see themselves in the story. So there isn't this idea that if I want to be my authentic black self as God created me, I need to abandon like the scriptures to do so. I want to say, no, no, no. In the scriptures, it's where home is. I mean, at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves this question. How seriously do we take the testimony of our ancestors? Even people talk about like ancestor worship, which I don't agree with. But when I'm talking about this, what does the testimony of our ancestors mean? And the testimony of our ancestors, you can read it. Look at the, um, look, look at, it's called Juneteenth. When we celebrated Juneteenth, we weren't saying that like Abraham freed, I mean, um, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. We celebrated this as an act of God. That's the reason why we worshiped on Juneteenth, because it was something that God had done. And so the, the testimony of black Christians is that our liberation has been the result of the providential work of God in our lives. And I want to show people the ways in which reading scripture can help support that rather than um, replace it with something that's deconstructive. Yeah. Oh, that's, that is, that is awesome. And again, I just, I'm just so grateful for that, especially, you know, like you said, like, you know, I'm, I'm I kind of come at things from a historian's perspective. So it's, it's, it's instructive and, and refreshing for me to be able to see similar points being made and, and also similar like encouragements being like kind of offered to the black community and to, and to the body of Christ as a whole, but from a biblical scholar perspective. Yeah, um, can I, can I, can I say that like, I see that like our books are being like kind of cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, on one hand, you're and that's the reason. Interestingly enough, I knew that you were working on the book when I was writing it. I didn't have a copy of Vince's book, so if I, if you do see some Vince Bantu in there, it's because of, because of our friendship. But what I tried to do, actually, because I knew you were going to do this important historical work, I did. I try to keep that part short because I said I know that mm-hmm. another brother who got he got that down. We already got the early African, you know, Nubian Orthodox Syria. All he got all of that down. So let me come over here and shift really to the Bible. And so mm-hmm. really the sense to which I think of all of this stuff that we're doing as a part of this community of people who is mm-hmm. trying to point towards a way of orthodoxy and orthopraxy coming together, even the Jude 3 project. So mm-hmm. I don't got to do apologetics because, you know, Lisa got apologetics down. I don't got to mm-hmm. do all of early African history because Vince got it down. I can just sit here and stay in my little my little lane, reading while black, and kind of do that. And then hopefully, if people need these resources, you you need a, this. Is my book, I'm gonna sell yours. You need the historical resources. Then go to see what Vince has to talk about. If you look at what the scriptures have to say and how we read the scriptures, then come over here. But I do think that it's a part of this larger recovery of mm-hmm. kind of black Christianity in its mm-hmm. expression in the midst of a shifting culture. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think I think it's part of a family of of books. I mean, if you want, sorry, you want to go to the political piece, go to the end campaign and look at compassion and conviction. Mm-hmm. I think it's a part of this kind of family of literature that we kind mm-hmm. of building up a library for our people. That's right. That's right. And 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 you know that's that's why the body needs each other. Amen. Yeah. You know? And the ear and the hand and the foot, we all working together. And uh, and and that actually brings up, um, you know, kind of a, another question that uh, that, you know, is a little bit kind of um, just kind of got inspired right now. But um, I, I wonder, you saw, you know, if you, you know, as, as we're looking at all these different ways in which God has risen up in every community, in every culture. Right. God's people is in every nation. Right. As you've already pointed out, that was the plan from the beginning that all nations will be blessed. And so so God has his covenant people in every community, and in every culture. And, and you and, and right now we're kind of talking about some of the some of the uh, people of God who are in the black community in ways that yeah. we are 
from different disciplines and different aspects, we are uh, we're really testifying to the gospel in our different um, kind of specializations. And but all again, united in the same work of, of proclaiming the gospel, especially, you know, in a black context. And so I, I wonder if, you know, just if you have any thoughts on um, if you could kind of share as a as a biblical scholar, just what that looks like, what what the special maybe challenges, but also opportunities and resources. Because I, I ask that because, you know, as a patristic scholar, as an early Christian scholar, uh, you know, I often feel, uh, but also as a black man, it's, it's kind of lonely sometimes. You know, it's not a whole lot of of us in my particular field. And there's so many pertinent questions, as you mentioned in, in, in my scholarship, I get into. There's so many things. So I just I can only imagine. And you've already touched on them. I can only imagine that there's also so many when you are reading while black, there are so many aspects of biblical studies that are unique. So I just wonder, yeah, kind of like as a as a black biblical scholar in particular, as opposed, you know, we need the ethicists and the theologians and the systematicians uh, or, you know, practical theologians as well. But I would imagine that it might be a similar dynamic where there's not as many of us in yeah. <laughs> biblical studies and just kind of what, yeah, what that's like. Well, I think that because for a variety of reasons, African-Americans tend towards kind of public theology and ethics, just because we're often dealing with pressing and emerging questions as what, what does it mean to be um, kind of black in America. So you see a lot of black public theologians, a lot of black ethicists, a lot of black anthropologists and sociologists. And because the New Testament has historically been stereotyped as kind of a historical discipline that looks only at the first century and kind of encloses the text in the past, then you don't see as many people coming into biblical studies. But historically, and so, so when I find myself saying is, a, how can I show that this doesn't need to be the case? The Bible isn't just this text that's captured, that's stuck in the path, past, but that, that the, the scriptures leap, leap the gap, that they come directly into the lived experience of the people. Because what Paul did is Paul thought that the things that were going on in the Old Testament had a direct relevance for his congregation in his day. And in the same way, I say that what's going, what Paul says, and what Jesus says, and what John says, and what James say, apply to the lived experiences of black people. And what, one of the things that happens is when you have a lot of biblical scholars who all come from kind of similar socioeconomic and cultural black backgrounds, you get certain blind spots. And so part of what I do as a scholar is to say, hold on, here's an issue that's been pressing in my community, but that since y'all not from there, y'all not really trying to answer this question. And so what, one, one example is that I give, you can keep, you can look over and over again at te a text on New Testament ethics, biblical ethics, and ask yourself how many of those standard works deal with the issues of ethnic identity, justice, or policing, all of which are in this book. Because these are questions that we had to ask ourselves. And how do they deal with the issues of relationship between the church and the state beyond issue, beyond passages like Romans 13? And so reading while black is just like, these are just the issues that were just like hiding in plain sight. It's saying these are questions that we're asking every day. These are, I call them barbershop conversations. When you're at the barbershop or when you're at the barbecue and you're just sitting around as black people talking, these are the kinds of issues that come up. And because there's a lot, there's not a lot of people who've been to the barbecue, Right. <laughs> There's not a lot of people who know the questions to ask. And so what I'm attempting to do is to begin to raise this. And then what I'm hoping that comes from that is that other black people around can say, hold on, I can see myself in New Testament scholarship. Because part of the part of the ability to do something and to be something is to see yourself there. And they haven't if they never seen someone seen us there, then it's not they're not likely to do it. So we need more black men and black women in biblical studies to kind of create room for us to be ourselves, because as long as we don't create the literature then our questions are never addressed. 
So we have to get ourselves kind of involved in the exegetical and in the, in the um, hermeneutical and in the, in the application process so that we can minister to our communities and create more people who create more content. So like what I really want to do as a scholar, what I hope Reading While Black does is inspires more black people to get into biblical studies and make their voice heard in the, in, in the public square. Yes, yes, and and I'm praying with you, brother, that that that, that happens. That that part, a huge part of the result of reading while black, and really just you know your career as a whole, uh, and 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 you know the other black scholars that are out there, you know, uh, Cleotha Robertson, Dennis Edwards, you know, Kadikwe Day, like yourself, like it's it's you know I praise God for it, like you said, this team that's growing, uh, and I and we pray that it grows, and that that God will even use reading while black in particular to really draw more and more of us and other communities as well that have been really underrepresented. Yeah. Yes, and amen. One one of the things that at the end of the book, you talking about other communities, because even though the book is called Reading While Black, it does look at because this is the, this is also a part of the Black Church tradition. It does look at not just the you know the Black participation in the Kingdom of God, but the Black but but African participation alongside the other nations of the world. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is Revelation seven nine. It's this vision for every tribe, tongue, and nation coming into the kingdom. And see, so you're right. We don't just need other Black scholars. We need Latina brothers and sisters. We need um, our Asian American brothers and sisters. We need our actual Asian brothers and sisters. We need Chinese and Japanese and Koreans from abroad. We need Nigerians and Ugandans and Rwandans so that we can together discern the mind of Christ so that we can kind of say, as people committed to the authority of scripture, how can we, how can we as one community of faith across culture read these texts as God's word to us for our good? And so this is not the last word. This is just one attempt to say, here's how I think God has been acting and speaking in and through the African-American community as an invitation for other people to continue to do that process, right? We need Uganda interpretation to, to, to sit alongside African-American biblical interpretation so that we might hear God's word together as one people. Amen. We need, Amen. We need the reunion We need the reunion of the diaspora in biblical interpretation, mm-hmm. right? I need to hear my mm-hmm. brothers and sisters. I need, we need it to kind of mm-hmm. hear God fully because God, mm-hmm. God is uniquely glorified in all the cultures of the world. Mm, amen. Amen. Yeah, I'd, I'd love your thought. We might have to do another. Uh, we might have to do another one on this. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, get off track too much. But just on that last comment, you know, I, I just want to throw this out there. And, and I've always had a. I've always had a thought and just an idea that we we might even also need some scholars like yourselves and from different different eyes looking at the text and maybe even give us some new translations as well. Uh, <laughs> different scholars looking at the yeah. looking at the Hebrew. I, 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 I've thought about. We I've talked and written about. Um, Bible translations. It's so much work to do in so little time and little space, but it would be good for us to kind of look at some of these texts together and and and, and try to understand how the scriptures are speaking to us. Mm, amen, amen. Well, we, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be praying for that time to be to be provided because I yeah that, that'd be your, awesome. Your linguistic, your linguistic skills are way beyond mine. I'm not a linguist like you are, so I'm oh. gonna, I try to know my lane. Oh man, no. Well, we, I'm, well, I might have to. Yeah, we might have to. Then we, like I said, we might have to get get to talking then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But 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 again, like this work that's out there is so powerful, and and definitely, uh, you know, everybody that's here definitely needs to get that book. And you know, um, I did want to make room before we kind of wrap up to just you know, Dr. McCauley, throw it out and see. You know, is there especially as we're looking at uh, the chapter on black and proud, you've already touched on so many aspects of identity and and all these different issues that are pertinent, especially in the black community and how these things are, as you said, 
they're, they're in plain sight in the text. Uh, I just wanted to, you know, ask, leave it open to see if there's anything else about that chapter in particular uh, or the book as a whole that that we haven't really touched on. Just any final things that you'd like to pull out uh, or have have our listeners really be able to just be aware of and, and be cued into uh, that's in that chapter. I think that one thing that I would say to the Christian is we have to kind of anti-blackness in America has taken a lot from us. Um, it affects our health, like like our literal physical health, our emotional health, um, our mental health, our you know our physical safety. Um, and one of the ways historically that we've coped and dealt with this is by acknowledging that God had not abandoned us, and not only had God not abandoned us. But that the lies that were told about us were just that lies. And so the point of this, the way that this chapter um, fits in the course of the wider book, it just kind of give the black Christian this sense of self that God created me as good. The, 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 the verse that um, the the two kind of opening quotes of the of the of that chapter is first one is um, I'm black and I'm beautiful, daughters of Jerusalem from Song of Solomon. And the other one was from James Brown. This is where the title comes from. I'm black and I'm proud. When I was a kid, I just thought that's just something that James was singing, right? That like, he just, I don't know why he said it. But when I, when I got older, I began to understand that he was saying I'm black and I'm proud in the face of a culture that said the blackness was, was less than. And what I wanted to be able to affirm people is not just like random ethnic pride, Right. But there's pride in recognizing that God created me and God called me beautiful. And I hope that um, like the the church hears that and listens to it. What, what, what The best way to think about this book is really I, I can see it kind of like an album. Right. And that like it's like an album in the sense that like they're, they're kind of variations on the theme and they thematically fit together. But they're not necessarily making one single single argument all the way through the book. And so this is just kind of like the track on black identity. And you might find another track on policing. And so I hope that you kind of get the vibe of what's going on with the book as it emerges as you read chapter after chapter. Amen. All right. Well, that's uh, man. I, that, again, if, if, if you know, if y'all don't have it, cop that mug today, uh, you know, get it. And matter of fact, Dr. McCauley, I just wanted to, you know, before we bring it to, a, you know, um, kind of a final close, uh, you know, just thank you so much for your work. Thanks for your scholarship. It's a blessing to the body and to black people. And I just wonder if you could maybe share with everybody who's with us today, you know, how, what's the best way for them to get the book? Uh, and also, you know, any things, any plugs, any things coming up in ways that people can continue to just follow and connect with you on social media or otherwise. Well, I think you got a book coming out. So let me shout out. Well, not sh- coming out. You have a book out. What's the name of your book, Vince? I want to get a multitude oh. of people. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, a multitude yeah. of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, look at that. So, like, I would say, like, support Black Christians who are attempting to provide scholarship for the church from the heart of the church. So, I want to encourage you to do that. I mean, I know that um, Jamar Tisby's book is out. Um, Justin Gibney's and campaign book is out. Lisa has her own curriculum. So hopefully reading why blackness sits alongside those important works and you can find it whenever, wherever you find other books, you know, Amazon, um, IVPPress.com, local bookstores. If there's a local black bookstore, you know, support them, show them some love, support your black businesses. Um, so that's what I, that's what I think. Um, I think it's the question you asked me, like, where can you find the book? 
Was there, was there another question that you had? Yeah, and just any other you know ways that people can be connected with you. Oh yeah, um, you can find you can find me on social media. You know, there's not a lot of Esau McCauley's. Um, like the name is pretty unique, so you can find me pretty easily on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, yeah, just pray for me as I continue to to write and try to be faithful to the text as I understand it. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. McCauley. Uh, it's such a powerful book. Again, Reading While Black, uh, definitely get the book. It's, it's, a, it's a treasure to the body and to the community. Um, you know, definitely be getting that. And I want to thank all of you all for joining us today. Uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jew 3 Project. You can also, Dr. McCauley mentioned uh, the Jew 3's curriculum through Eyes of Color. You can get that curriculum. Uh, donate to Jew3. And also there is a um, online course that goes with the Jew3 Project's curriculum through Eyes of Color. You can get all of that at jude3project.org. And so remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we are helping you to know what you believe and why. So thank you for tuning in and God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.